you done quite a bit of Zoom calls yet? Uh, not not a lot. You know, probably, you know, less than half a dozen, certainly. Yeah. As best I can, I try to steer away from it. If it's a last resort, mm -hmm. you know, business-wise, I'll certainly do that. But, you know, my line of work doesn't call for a lot of it, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Has yeah. it been challenging through the pandemic with your work or your line of work? Um, yeah, but that's not to imply it hasn't um, been good, uh, you know, kind of bottom line, if you will, or business. Um, you know, the great thing is I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm in charge of my own destiny. I mean, the p pandemic certainly, the pandemic certainly hasn't, you know, stopped me from working. Uh, quite the opposite, I'm working more. I've, you know, I've always kept my regular painting hours and studio hours. And, uh, you know, the, the marketing and the packaging, if you will, and the selling of, of my work has shifted. Um, you know, would I be doing better if the pandemic wasn't here? You know, probably. Am I doing okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. So, yeah, I can't complain. Are people looking for, I guess, smaller pieces now for their home offices? Because that's where they're heading now. Yeah. Um, not necessarily, Zach. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this full time for over 35 years. So, you know, I, I, it's so fluid and I always try to, to keep on top of all those things, including size of pieces and so on. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, my best, is, my work is best on a larger scale uh, for a number of reasons, including um, I think my subjects, uh, you know, are better on that scale, you know, because they're kind of heroic, a lot of them, the Western images and, and large herds and so on. Plus my natural style of painting uh, is more conducive to a larger format. So that said, uh, the size of my work hasn't really um, impacted in a negative way on placing my work in homes. You know, it's funny because, because again, generally my work is large. So painting behind me is, is 72 inches by 42 inches. You know, most people say, oh, my goodness, your paintings are so big, you know, they must go into corporate offices and boardrooms. You know, sure, that's right. But, you know, probably, honestly, 90% go into homes. You know, let's not kid ourselves, you know, walls hold, hold up the roof. And, and every home has three feature walls, at least, you know, above the couch, um, in the dining room, and probably other locations. So, you know, and, and those locations can accommodate a painting behind me or a little smaller. So uh, so I, I've been okay with that. Paul, do you pick your frames as well or is it you leave that up to the customer to choose what kind of frame they would? Um, yeah, good question. I, I choose them myself, um, but certainly I allow the customers to, um, you know, have their input as well if it comes to that. Um, so I'm flexible that way. You know, most of my paintings have a conventional frame on them. But a lot of them also have, they're presented in a gallery wrapped presentation, which means you just kind of, you know, paint the sides of the canvases just black. So it's kind of contemporary, clean. And frankly, it's less expensive. You know, my, the price point for those paintings would be a little less because they don't have a frame on them, uh, you know, which is um, desirable to some clients. Um, and sometimes paintings don't need frames. So it's, you know, just like the painting itself, it's very subjective. But also frames are like a marriage, right? I mean, <laughs> there has to be compatibility. It, it has to work. Um, so the frame behind me, for example, I get I got that one custom made. A lot of my pure Western kind of barn wood frames are custom made out of uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Wow. Yeah. 
Now, Paul, do you do you have a picture in your mind of what you're going to paint, or do you go out and take a picture and then say, I'm going to paint that? Yeah, it's more of the latter, Zach. Um, it's more, you know, if I could be so bold to speak for most artists and not just visual artists, you know, we kind of record our life experience, right? You know, we live this, we live in the world and we, you know, react and we hit all the different emotions and so on. And then as a painter, I record my life experience through my paintings. So there's a physical visual document mm-hmm. of, of my journey. And so that said, you know, my journey changes just like yours. You know, we don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next year. You know, we kind of plan for or predict, but we kind of react. And uh, so what I do is I, I, um, I record, you know, travel experiences, um, you know, my love and desire for the West. So I gravitate to ranches and First Nations developments and such. And then I absorb that, um, take photographs as reference and go back to my studio and create the work. So, you know, just by virtue of me discussing that, you know, I'm extremely mindful of that. You know, whatever I put in as a creative person is going to come out in some way. And not necessarily right away. You know, some paintings that I've done and I anticipate doing, I experience that event or, or, or situation or photo shoot 20 years ago, you know. And, you know, so it kind of ferments and it kind of takes time and other things kind of get in the way, not in a negative way, but it's also fluid. But, but you know, honestly, like one, one painting that I, I consider, you know, kind of my magnum opus, if you will, my most significant work, I was at a photo shoot in North Dakota, or excuse me, South Dakota, 20 years ago. And I photographed a bunch of these, you know, posse and hombres and outlaws and so on. They're really cool. And I kind of thought about that experience and, and those references and so on this long. And I finally painted the painting. So, you know, so that's not, not unusual, but it's also fluid too, Zach. You know, I mean, you know, as a artist and kind of small businessman, I got to react to the market and I got to supply demand. Um, so, you know, as things sell, frankly, and, and when I get attention on certain paintings, you know, even though I, I, I planned on doing other paintings, if I have to supply the demand because those particular paintings sold, then I will do so. You know, and again, that's not a compromise because I love the work and, and I'm inspired because the paintings are in demand and they're popular. So it's really interesting that way, you know, even though I have my, you know, I'm planning, I'm also very flexible as well. And I think that's important. That's a skill set to have. I mean, especially as an artist, most times I can say for myself, you know, in videography and whatnot, we can get caught up and say, well, you know, it's disturbing the creative space if I continue on this one path. And that, yes, the market wants that, but I want to explore other things. And yeah. this is where I believe I should be. And, and the market should follow me. How did you know not to be so stubborn in that way? Well, you know, I was, uh, no question. And, you know, it, you know it, to be perfectly honest, you know, my bottom line, if you will, probably could have been better over the years. Right if I just stuck with what sold, you know, um, and as attractive and seductive as that is, my primary purpose, you know, equal to running my little business is to explore and grow as an artist. You know, I mean, every artist wants to do that. So, you know, you want to learn things. And, and then in the case of a painter, you know, I'll, I'll try new subjects and, and then it's important for me to find a market for them. So yeah, I could have stuck to kind of one thing, if you will, or, or focus on that, but that, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I just didn't, didn't serve me well, but, you know, again, consistent with, you know, 
being fluid and, and flexible. You know, so I've shifted that somewhat. You know, I've landed on a kind of a sweet spot, if you will, in terms of, you know, the type of work I do, um, the market for it, kind of the price point and all those things coming into play. You know, the actual paintings always change to a degree, but that sweet spot is well in place. So, so I'm, I'm really focusing on that. You know, when I say that, it's, you know, kind of a specific type of Western image, specific kind of size, you know, the, the larger size as we discussed earlier. Um, and, you know, with that, I know what the market demands, you know, based on precedent, based on what has sold in the past, you know, to kind of ask my, my own question, you know, pricing too, you know, I mean, the way I price it, you know, because I've been doing it for such a long time, I price it primarily in accordance to market demand, you know, not necessarily size and so on, even though that factors into a degree. You know, when I first started out, and a lot of artists have done this, you know, you're, it's priced according to size, you know, for the most part. And that's a pretty good system. But then once you're a little more established and you're moving art on a more regular basis, at least in my view, you know, it's, it's demand for a certain piece. So two paintings can be the same size, but one is far more attractive, you know, which, which yields a better, a higher price point. And so, you know, that, that's kind of how I operate as well. Wow. Very cool. You know, it's, it's one of those things. How do you know your, your self-worth or how do you know what you're worth? Yeah. That's the toughest thing. Yeah. You can value it on, Oh, how much paint you put in, or like you said, the canvas size. And on my end, it's how many minutes for the yeah. video, but that's not always what it is. It, that's it's it. A lot deeper. You know Oh, you got it, Doug. And, you know, and, you know, my primary objective and to me, the definition of success, at least in my field, is not to be rich and famous, but it's to do it full time until your last breath, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to gouge the market and get as much money as I can for every painting. I want to get fair return and, and have a fair price and be consistent and, you know, operate like a business. But also I want to stay in business, right? You know, I want to make sure the boat keeps on floating, you know, so, you know, some paintings yield a little more money, some a little less, but as long as it averages out and allows me to continue to paint, pay the bills, buy the supplies, continue to, you know, grow, you know, and the joy of, of being an artist, that is my primary objective. So if I can do it to my last breath, you know, I, I will continue to be a happy man. And that's a good life. You know, yeah, sure. You, you know, and also, you know, um, a lot of artists, as you know, you know, they don't retire. Um, you know, Ian Tyson still is making music. How old is he? 87, 87, 87 you know? Yes, yeah. yeah, 87, 88, whatever. Robert Bateman, you know, the wildlife artist out of Salt Spring, yeah. uh, British Columbia. You know, he just turned 90 years old. You know, on his birthday, he painted. You know, he went to the studio. You know, so, if, you know, anyone who has a passion like that, and it's not exclusive just to art, but that's a real gift. You know, and then that I, I think that allows for longevity in life as well, you know, because you among, you know, most important things, obviously, is love and family and friends, of course. But, you know, one needs things to do and to focus on and challenges. So I embrace that. You know, I mean, I just turned 60. You know, I, I think I'm, you know, I'm already I'm already getting started. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm halfway through my career, honestly. You know, I've got 30 years behind me. Hopefully I got 30 years like Robert Bateman ahead of me, you know, so I'm still kind of getting the hang of this, which is, uh, which is pretty exciting. One of my dad's favorite artists, I can't remember his name. Um, oh yes. Michael Kincaid, I think. Yes. Yep. The light worker. He does all the light. 
Yeah. You just, you know, there's so many ways to look at art. Is it tough to say this is good art, this is not so good art? How do you know what's good art these days? You know, I don't know. You know, nobody knows. You know, and, and I say that because, you know, we all hear about these auctions, right? You know, this, this painting going for $200 million, you know, and some of them are just weird, you know. Well, so so what is art? There you go. You know, that was the one that the Canadian government bought um, for $1.8 million 15 years ago. Highly controversial. But you know what? Also, Zach, it's like, you know, it's whatever demand is, you know, so credit, you know, and good for these rich people who, who, who can afford to buy these pieces that are, you know, maybe really unusual to the rest of us, including artists. But if they could turn it over in 10 years and make a $50 million profit, you know, as bizarre as that is, it's real, you know. So are those pieces that sell for that much good art? I don't know. You know, it was Vincent van Gogh, you know, one of his um, sunflower paintings, whatever, that really got the art world's attention when it sold at auction for maybe 80 million or something. You know, that was one of a series of maybe half a dozen of those paintings that looked the same. So I'm not saying that to diminish, you know, that series, but it was an okay piece, you know, but there was so much demand and there still is for his work, largely because of, you know, the, the angst and, and the suffering and the mystery of this man who created these images. So that, re, that primarily in his case anyways, resulted in his, his work being in such demand. You know, he maybe sold one piece in his, in his life, but his demand went up too. So that's, I'm adding that as, you know, there are so many things that go into the value of an object or painting in this case. And it's not just the aesthetic of the painting, right? It's it's the providence of the piece. It's the artist. Um, and let's don't kid ourselves. You know, if the artist has has a tragic story or, or, or interesting story, there's no question it adds to the value and, and the and the uh, attraction of that particular piece. So there are so many moving parts. Exactly, and well, great question on that, or great answer on that is, um, Tom Thompson, his tragic yeah. story, what happened to him in the... Yeah, yeah, you bet. Right yeah. On the river and whatnot, what happened to his canoe. So people are fascinated by the group of seven and what they've done, Yeah, especially in Canadian art. So his price just goes up. Well, there you go. You know, and uh, like the rest of everyone, you know, I, I too am fascinated when discoveries are made. You know, the somebody buys a piece in, in a garage sale or something, and it happens to be, you know, a very famous artist. But that supports the position that, you know, aesthetically, it's not a great painting because somebody was going to, trying to sell for $25. But once you find out what it is and who painted it, then all of a sudden, you know, there goes the price, right? Like the Mona Lisa, you know, I don't know if you've seen it. I mean, I've seen it a few times. I've been to Louvre a few times. You know, sure, of course, it's a great painting, but it's the most famous painting in the world because of the exposure, you know. I mean, an artist doesn't create a masterpiece. A museum does. You follow me? A museum like the Louvre grabs a painting like Leonardo's, as beautiful as it is, puts it in a room behind bulletproof glass, you know, and it's copied and photographed and so on, like more than any painting in the, in the world mm -hmm. um, and in the history of art. Then everybody's in awe. There's the Mona Lisa. And again, I'm not saying this to diminish the value of it, but all the paintings around it are probably better paintings 
but it's the focus on that one piece. And you know, that's so that it's isn't it? Where it's that demand where you're like, well, why are people taking photos of it? Why does it have a bulletproof glass yeah. around it? Well, we got to go see it. Well, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. People go to the Louvre and stand in line for three hours, mm -hmm. almost just to see that one painting, you know, which is, which is really weird. And in a sense, it's not fair in a sense, you know, because uh, there's so many other masterpieces that should have more attention as well. I think they have the correlations and uh, Napoleon's paintings in there, and it's just beautiful. Some of the pieces, how big they are, I just can't yeah. get over the size. Oh, oh, I mean, I'm with you. And, and as you can appreciate, somebody who does paint, you know, just to sort of um, imagine taking on those projects. I mean, the ambition and the skill, but also the logistics. You know, as you mentioned, Zach, I mean, some of them, you know, physically are the size of a house. You know, how does one take that on, you know? Um, and, and a lot of those masters, I mean, we're talking about them today because of what they've done five, six, seven years ago, but they were just young, you know, I mean, in their twenties, you know, Rembrandt and all of those guys, oh, there you go, you know, and so many of them, uh, suffered and, and, and died tragically, you know, Caravaggio died when he was 37 destitute on, on a, on a on a beach somewhere, you know, we know about Van Gogh. Van Gogh Rembrandt was flat broke, you know, just and so on, you know. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's compelling, and you know, on so many artists, especially these masters, you know, a lot of them during their day, during their lives, they don't get the kind of attention you know they should, if you will, and and they kind of barely get by. Um, but it's you know it's it's years and often hundreds of years after their, their lives, mm -hmm. after their death, that they uh, are kind of discovered and their demand goes up. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a 14-year-old uh, daughter, uh, Isabella, and uh, every year I paint her portrait. Mm -hmm. So when she was, when she was born, uh, my wife Kristen and I decided that I would paint Isabella's portrait as a birthday present for Kristen. And so I've done 14 so far. But I'm raising this act because in a funny way, I say to Isabella, you know what, honey, those paintings will probably be the most valuable of dads, you know, when I, when I pass away. But you, you, can't, you won't be able to cash in on those in your lifetime. <laughs> so maybe your grandkids or something, you know, 100 years down the road or 50 years, you know, that maybe those paintings might have some kind of value if my work ever does when I'm, when I'm deceased. Well, my point being, you know, it doesn't happen right away if it ever happens. It, it, uh, it might happen years down the road. You know, there's the power of branding and people don't buy products and services. Most oftentimes they buy the story, the magic of that person. Yeah. And the why. Yeah. How did you build this brand here in Canada, Paul, over these years? I mean, 35 years. There must have been uh, ups and downs and there, it wasn't always a hockey stick, was it? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, one has to pay their dues and work the trenches and, you know, very few people in any discipline are overnight successes. So, uh, you know, you have to grind, you know, just like in music, for example, you know, we hear a new band and say, you know, where have they been? Well, they've been grinding it out for 25 years and finally they have the opportunity. So, you know, right from the start, Zach, I mean, it was, it was not lost on me that if I want to make a go of this, you know, as a visual artist, and not starve and do it full time and so on. I, I would have to establish some kind of business acumen, you know, to make this thing happen. Um, and a lot of that has to do with branding and marketing and so on. You know, at least half my time 
is spent on marketing. Um, I don't resent that. I mean, it's a necessary evil to, to obtain my objective of painting full-time for the rest of my life, but it's a real acquired skill. You know, by no means am I an introvert, but I'm happiest when I'm alone in my studio, just doing my thing. You know, sure, I'm a social guy, whatever, but I'm happiest just do my thing, don't bother me, you know? So I'm saying that because despite that, you know, that sense of joy that I, that I feel in that capacity, um, I do have to be out there and brand and so on. You know, I resisted social media for a long time after it was kind of, you know, became so, so prominent and powerful. But then, because again, I'm a, a small businessman, you know, I, I recognize the power of it. And so now I've really embraced it. And I've embraced it in a, in a, in a, in a big way in that I don't just kind of, you know, post and run, you know, I'm, I have to post, and I have to be aware that there's reaction and so on. You know, and I, I'm also mindful that I'm just scratching the surface with, with the juggernaut of social media, but I only have so much time in a day. That's the other thing, you have a family, you have, to, you have work to do. Oh, priorities, right? And yes, I can I can hire somebody, you know, to do that for me, but I, I still prefer to have that kind of control and so on. So anyways, you know, so I'm, I'm extremely aware that social media primarily is the branding, you know, and that comes down to also having a business plan and, mm -hmm. and being consistent. You know, when I talk to aspiring artists or colleagues, you know, I bring that to everyone's attention in the sense that people are watching, you know. Um, you know, you, you, we may know things because people contact us or whatever, but 95% of stuff we don't know. And as an artist, people are following us and so on that we're not aware of. So as long as there's good branding, consistency, you're not erratic, you know, all those things have to go into it because one has to be very careful about that. It's funny. You, you know, and also, sorry. I'm sorry. What were you saying? No, I was just gonna say on that, yeah, I was just gonna say on that note, Zach, you, you know, um, and when one exhibits, uh, you know, you gotta be careful with that too, because if people are gonna collect your work or buy a painting, there's no question, you know, let's don't kid ourselves. If they met you, whenever they look at that painting, they're gonna think of you because they met you, right? So you got to do your best to make sure that's a good experience when you meet them, because that could make or break a sale. You know, you don't want to act or you want to fake things, of course not. But you got to be, a, you know, a, a decent human being, if you will, or whatever, be whichever way you want. But just don't, just make sure that one recognizes the power of that introduction. You know, um, as a sidebar, you know, the Calgary Stampede is a huge global juggernaut, as we all know. It includes uh, an exhibition, of course, an art exhibition of which I've been part of for 18 years. But you know, they estimate three to four hundred thousand people go through the art area. Sure, we don't talk to everyone as exhibiting artists, but we talk to a lot of people. And so, uh, yes, we're fatigued and everything else. But if we're not on our game, you shouldn't even be there, because somebody coming up to you wanting to meet you you know, it's probably hinging on whether they're going to buy a painting or not. So just recognizing, you know, how important that connection is. And, uh, you know, a lot of my best friends today kind of frankly started off being collectors, you know, we kind of had that in common, you know, with the art thing, and then it morphed into great friendships. So it's, uh, you know, like a lot of professions, it, uh, it could lead to uh, really good friendships as well. Do you, have any artists out there that you're inspired by that are existing or non-existing anymore? 
Um, I have always been primarily inspired and influenced by the master paintings and painters, you know, Velazquez and Caravaggio, we touched on some of them. Um, a, a little more of a contemporary, if you will, painter, uh, 19th century is John Singer Sargent. So even though I'm, uh, I'm aware of current uh, painters, uh, I don't follow anybody per se. I mean, I appreciate and I'm inspired by, and there's not like one or two necessarily, there's a whole bunch. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's always changing too, because, you know, I feel I'm always changing as a person, as an artist. So different artists out there may all of a sudden get my attention that I didn't even pay attention to. You know, for example, you know, a, a good example of this is um, the Met Metropolitan Museum in New York. Um, you know, I've, I've probably been there 15 times. And it's interesting too, because it's a permanent collection. And it's rare that they move paintings around. So some paintings that, you know, may have attracted my attention when I first went there, I almost ignore, you know, when I, when I return, because I've moved on to other, other uh, interests and uh, other paintings that I prefer as well. So I think that's a really good thing because it shows kind of the evolution of, of me as a person, as an artist as well. I mean, it's interesting to see the brand you've built over the 35 years. What was your most exciting moment? Like that one painting you sold and you're like, holy smokes, I have made it. <laughs> like you hit, it hit you and you're like, all those other years have just, it brought it alive. Yeah. Uh, boy, um, great question. You know, certainly there are several. Yes. But um, yeah, there's one in particular that really stands out. Um, and it's kind of, in a sense, it's consistent with some of the stuff I already offered. Um, kind of long story short, um, the Calgary Stampede um, to celebrate the millennium uh, in 2000, of course, they wanted to do something epic. So they they established something called the Trail 2000, where they brought their horse, bucking horses and livestock from their ranch in Hannah, just north of Calgary, kind of the old fashioned way, overland with cowboys, um, as opposed to bringing them in by a trailer, you know, to the stampede. And so it was really epic. It was a lot of, you know, there was probably 200 head of horses, a lot of cowboys. So I was on that trail kind of off and on. I didn't ride on it necessarily, but I went there because it was over the course of five or six days. So I went there to experience it and also uh, take uh, when the herd crossed the Red Deer River. Um, and it was just, you know, epic and just breathtaking. So I thought about that image for 13 years and I finally had the courage and I felt the skill to paint that painting. It was 60 inches by 80 inches. Um, and I painted it. And then soon after that I promoted and so on, and relatively soon after I painted it, maybe a couple of months, I sold that painting. I sold it actually to um, Canadian Pacific oh, yes. uh, Railway. And their headquarters is in Calgary, which is off Ogden Road. So that large painting mm -hmm. is in the front reception area of, of Canadian Pacific. And, you know, from a business standpoint, it was an expensive painting. I mean, it was, it was a $50,000 painting. Um, you know, they wanted a bit of a discount of which I gave them one because I just want to make a sale. So all those things really aligned. It was a perfect storm. So it was, it was the experience of that. Plus, you know, the price point, I kind of got my price and so on. So, so that was certainly one. There's been a couple of other ones after that, but that was the first, you know, as per your question. And that was, that was when I called that one, my magnum opus. There's been two other magnum opuses subsequent to that, but that was the first. When 
you open one can like that or you hit that one milestone, there's this domino effect now in life. Oh, it's an addiction. Oh, it's like a drug, Isaac. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, the completion of any painting or any sale, it's a drug, you know. And uh, one thing I always focus on, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of in terms of my abilities, is to kind of spin one painting into more, if you will, you know. Um, you know, when, when, I, when I make a sale or something, you know, I don't look at that as the end of that relationship. I'll look at it at the beginning, as the beginning. And the actual physical painting, you know, I try to learn from that as well. You know, what did I learn from this image? You know, can I create a better image similar? Should I make it into a series? You know, what kind of attention has this painting received? And how can I spin that into, you know, more fun and more profit and so on? So, um, you know, not to be strange, but it's almost like, you know, those are all my kids, you know? I mean, I've done close to 2000 paintings. They're all my kids. I, I love them I and I want to, you know, get the most potential out of each one of them for as long as I can go, you know, and that's not compromising the image. Quite frankly, it's, it's the opposite. It's just recognizing potential in that painting or whatever, the opportunity and trying to maximize it. And uh, because, you know, in artists also, I mean, I, I look at painters as, you know, kind of working on one big painting their entire life. You know, these are all little tapestries and pieces of it. So, you, you, you know, you can't really necessarily say it all in one piece. Um, you know, when I, when I symbolically sign the painting, you know, that represents the completion of that painting. And it's the best I can do in that moment in time. And, and the painting stops in. But it's just part of the whole tapestry of all the paintings that I, I do as an artist. How do you know when you're done with that piece? or yeah. when to stop, because that's yeah. a struggle at times. Oh, just a little more strokes here, <laughs> a few more. Yeah, another great question, Zach, because, uh, you know, every artist goes through that. And, uh, and and again, not just in the visual arts, all artists. Um, for me, anyways, it's when I stare at that painting and I feel there is nothing I can do to improve that painting. And, you know, let's put it this way, to through the execution of a painting, there are always kind of mistakes, if you will, and I always call it, I call it like crossing bridges, but it's only a mistake if you leave it, right? So you just kind of go through it and you go with the flow and so on. But what, when a painting is done, and I then if I feel, you know, there's nothing I could do to improve that painting, then I'll sign it and that's it. And even if I see something the next day that, you know, whatever may not be right, I, I don't go back into it. I kind of honor and I recognize that, you know, that moment in time and, you know, th through, through my career, I've always been meticulous in terms of um, recording things. So I, I keep track on how long every painting takes. And I only work on one painting at one time, so it has my full attention. So for example, if I, you know, I'm gonna start painting after our interview here. And uh, so I'll look at the clock and I'll, I'll log that in. And then if I paint four hours today, I'll just put four on the side of the canvas. And once that painting is done, you know, I'll calculate how much time it took I'll put into my books. I'll put down all those details and so on. So it's, again, it's honoring that experience and it's honoring that painting. And, you know, if and when that painting sells, of course, I record when it's sold, how much, who, who the collector is and all these things. And I'm, I'm naturally pleased that I've always done that because, you know, 35 years later, I'm still accessing paintings I did way back then um, for information. And, and, you know, often people 
you know, contact me and say, I bought a painting from you in 1992 and maybe they want information or whatever. And, you know, more times than not, I have that information. So it's never too early to start recording that stuff. Has it been interesting to see where your paintings have ended up? In oh, absolutely. Places? Oh, it's just a, it's a crazy thrill, Zach. You know, it's a, it's a thrill and an honor. You know, I mean, if I can do, you know, something to enhance one's life just in a small way. I mean, that's a real honor, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it almost says more about the person acquiring a painting than the artist painting. You know, somebody steps, on, steps up and says, I like that painting. I want to buy that painting, you know, for in a lot of cases, a good price. And I want to put it in my space and look at it 25 times a day for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I'm speaking in generalities, but you know, for the most part, that's pretty accurate. And then I'm going to pass it down to, you know, through the generations. So, you know, it's something, again, I can create, does that for someone. It's a humbling experience. So whether it's a student in in a dormitory or a Canadian national or Canadian Pacific company, I don't care, but he's equal because they have one of my pieces and they have a little piece of me, you know, which is, uh, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love your work. You do a lot of sh- your shadowing is just unbelievable. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. With that, Zach, um, the shadow is a result of light, right? So, in real life and in painting, mm-hmm. so to me, light is one of the most important things. You know, because mm-hmm. light gets the shadows in a painting in terms of the execution of the painting. It, it, it you know, establishes volume of objects and figures and horses and so on. Um, it's color. You know. But, but mainly the shadows, you know, for me anyways, and maybe for you, is the drama, you know, what is in the shadows of life or in a painting, right? So, uh, so and in my shadows, in my paintings, there is stuff in there. It's not just black, you know, there's all kinds of color, there's kind of detail. So what I try to do as a painter is I create an object, or, you know, an image that attracts one's attention. So they're going to pause for a second or two and look at the piece. But if they're going to take the time to look at the piece, I want them to discover more stuff. I want to make it worth their while to look at the piece. And a lot of that, you know, it's not hidden things, but it's information is in the shadows, you know. And when one discovers that, you know, I would think it's a, it's a neat sensation, you know, because that's what images are, aren't they? They're, Isn't they're, that an analogy of life as well? A lot of well, there you go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in our shadows. That's it, you know, and uh, you know, with with objects or images, paintings, photographs, you know, they're just triggers, aren't they? They're they're triggers into the the psyche, the soul, the imagination, the history of the viewer. You know, you and I and two other people can stand in front of a painting and say, you know, what it is, um, and articulate it that way. But what it means to all of us is going to be different, you know, and more times than not. The people who acquire my paintings, um, it's because of them and their history. It triggers. Yes. Oh, you better believe it, you know. And so, they'll, if it's a when they look at that painting, um, it'll bring down that memory, you know. And that painting might be the catalyst or the trigger for them to have a conversation with with a family member or a friend who walks into their home, you know, through my work. So that is really cool, you know. How, uh, like a painting for yourself, how long does it take to create one? Or does it just depend on, like, for example, the one behind you? Is that yeah. a one-week process? And how do you keep the patience? Because you get excited, I just want to keep get done now. It's, this is so cool, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I, so I've been told um, I'm a fairly fast painter. Okay. Um, a lot of people um, kind of marvel at my detail, you know, which is, which is fair. Um, and I'm happy about that because there is a lot of detail, generally speaking, mm -hmm. but it's not rendered detail. It's more expressed and interpreted detail. So um, with respect to your question, Zach, um, you know, time primarily uh, is a direct result of how much detail is in a painting and scale. But even though I have a lot of detail, you know, even in that painting there, um, it's still very loose, you know. So if somebody says, uh, thinks it looks like a photograph, whatever, okay, walk up to it and see the personality of the artist, in this case, through the brushstroke and so on. And it's interesting, too, because a lot of people think the highest compliment is that it looks like a photograph, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, respectfully, that's not the objective. You know, the objective is quite frankly is opposite. I like to think I can elevate, a painter can elevate a photograph into something even more, you know, with life and texture and interpretation and so on. So again, I, the way I cho choose to paint is, you know, realistically, representationally, but also expressively that I wanna put the viewer, I wanna put you to work. I want you to finish that painting for yourself, you know? I'm not gonna give you every little detail and every little hair, cause I don't need to. I'm gonna give you enough information that you know what it is, but I want you to engage in that painting and I want you to finish it. Well, that's my objective anyways. Um, yeah, you bet. You know, so um, getting back to your question too, Zach, I kind of digress all over the place. Um, you know, that painting behind me, it, it wouldn't take a week, you know, probably a week at the most. And so, um, and my painting, the hours I paint in each day, you know, I try, you know, I try to paint every day and as long as I can. But again, I got to do the business stuff and stuff that we talked about earlier first. I usually do that in the mornings. That's why we're having our thing right now in the morning. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, but, you know, I paint standing up and it's, so it's very physical and, it, and it's and it's very emotional. So it's kind of draining. That's not a negative thing. It's an observation. So, you know, four or five hours painting is enough for me and I don't work overtime. I'm too old for that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, so it's really intense. So saying it, it took me a week, that represents, you know, five hours a day times five days, so 25 hours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on average, um, that's kind of how long it takes. Paul, you but, know, you know what fascinates me is your, your, your discipline. I mean, I hear so many artists, they say, well, I, I work at like two in the morning when I'm drunk and that's when I get the most inspiration <laughs> or... Oh, yeah, I love on that. these magic mushrooms. <laughs> like you've heard it all. We've all heard all this yeah, I love that. I love hearing that stuff, you know, because it's true and it helps a lot of artists, you know, with that, you know, as you can appreciate, you know, I've been asked that over the years. That's what I was going to oh, ask. You're, oh, you're, you're an artist, you know, you get up at three o'clock in the morning and attack the canvas. Well, <laughs> what are you on or what do you think? Oh, oh, oh absolutely. Is it? Uh, no, you know, I guess maybe I should be accountant or something. I'm very disciplined. And, uh, you know, I get up at the same time, you know, I make breakfast for a little girl, and I read the paper and I do my thing. But then when it's showtime, when it's when I'm in the studio, then I'm, then I'm all business sort of mm -hmm. thing. But, you know, and when it's five o'clock, you know, I turn off the taps, literally and figuratively, and that's it. I don't work in the evenings. I don't work weekends, unless I have to, yeah. you know, but that's it. You know, so I'll, I'll give it my all. I'll leave it on the court, if you will. But when it's time to stop, I stop. I can stop cold turkey and just shut it right off. Absolutely. 
But it's yeah. interesting that you, you focus on one painting and say, I need to get this done before I move on to another painting. Yeah, so our minds can start going like this and this. Sure. Oh, yeah. You know, and mine does too, yeah. of course, Zach, you know, to a degree, you know, not to a large extent. Yeah. Um, but to a degree. And, you know, with that too, um, you know, life takes over. You know, in my particular case, I may be starting a painting, I'm working on it, and all of a sudden I got to stop for whatever reason, a good reason or a bad reason. And I may not you know, be able to return that painting the following day or the day after. And so, you know, technically, you know, the paint uh, has changed and maybe my my flow has changed and so on. But I, I, I never abort the painting. I never, you know, discard it. I just resume, you know, because life is part of the medium. But life is part of the whole, the whole experience, you know, of creating that piece. So that becomes a providence perhaps of that painting. I was pulled away for this, that, but now I've returned and here we go, you know? And, you know, and, and over my career, um, yeah, there's been several times, fewer now, but several times that paintings are just not working. But because again, I, I don't give up, you know? Uh, with those paintings that haven't worked or weren't working, sometimes I would just do the most radical thing to it, to kind of like slap it in the face, like wake up, you know, give me some life. Show me what you want to be. And then sometimes those paintings turn out to be the most magnificent paintings. Like, honestly, you know, in my view anyways, um, because of that, you know, so you're just rolling with it, you know. And again, every artist is a human being. We're all the same. Some days are better than others. Some days you're on. Some days you're not. But whether I'm on or not, I still check into work, you know. There's never a perfect time. You just got to show up, you know. So some days I'm on, I'm like a surgeon, you know, I could paint a, the rim around a cowboy hat at one swoop, you know, or some days I'm, I'm a little more hesitant. So it's a different kind of painting. But you just kind of honor that experience. And whether you're like no excuses, you just go to work, you know, and you just do your best. You know, when you have the creative block, do you sometimes seize the day and say, I've tried everything today? Maybe sometimes it's, it's better to just walk away for a little bit from the painting and then um, focus on business for a bit and come back maybe down the line? Or do you just sit there and say, I got to go through this, go in it? You know, it's it's rare. I'm not saying that never happens, Zach, but, you know, it's rare that that happens that I, but at least I have the luxury of, you know, leaving the painting and just, you know, doing some other stuff I need to do business-wise. So my my day is still, you know, a successful day in, in its own way. But um, no, I, you know, I, I you know, I never have a creative block, you know, it's like there's a hundred paintings haunting me all the time in this moment, you know, there's never enough time. And I don't say this out of frustration um, at all. I say this out of joy and recognition, but there's a hundred paintings in my head that I got to paint, you know, and they're always moving as well as I, as I mentioned, because of my life experience. So there's, so there's never that creative block, you know, not that you were focusing on that, but that's a common thing in, in the arts. Uh, I mean, no way, you know, I mean, it's just, and, you know, be partially because of that, or as a spin of that, it's not as if I'm, you know, I'm erratic and all over the place, you know, I mean, I'm not changing overnight all the time, I'm, of course not, you know, I'm, I'm committed, and I'm sticking to a particular painting, as we discussed, or a series, you know, I'm all in until it's done, and then I'll move on to that other, other series or whatever in due course. But I don't abandon things because I have a whim or something, you know. I mean, of course not. Well, how do you, or how would a, someone know your painting other than the Western heritage and what you do? How can you say that's a Paul Van Ginkel right there? Um, you know, 
I guess I've said this a few times, another great question. Um, you know, I don't know that and I don't have the answer, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that over the years, a lot of people have said that to me, you know, that, you know, I could tell that's one of your paintings. And they've said it also in the context that, you know, even though if I'm known for anything, it's my Western work, yes. but that's not all I do. You know, I do a lot of dance themes, oh, yes. you know, flamenco, ballet. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of First Nations portraits and otherwise I do, you know, a variety of things, figurative work, nudes and so on. Speaking of First Nations, you actually have created a piece that's one of your favorite, if I'm not mistaken, of a chief. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. What was one of your favorite things about that painting and and what brings this Western heritage to you and gets that going, makes you tick? Um, you know, when you say a chief, I'm thinking about 30 chief paintings. Oh, <laughs> so I don't know exactly which one you were talked about it. In but, a, but that doesn't matter. No, you talked about it in a, frig, uh, a podcast you did with the Canada podcast, I think. You talked about a, okay. a painting, one of your favorite paintings of all time that you've done. It was. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. What you mean. I think he was a warrior. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've kept it. Yes. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, we could talk about that one specifically, Zach. You know, um, my wife and I have kept a lot of my paintings over the years. Um, you know, and, and with that to digress in a sense, um, you, you know, when I when I finish a painting, um, you know, I sign it and I want to put it into the market, and I have to be proud of it. Of, mm -hmm. and of course, I do. Um, but it doesn't mean I want to own it or keep it. But every now and then one comes along that really resonates with me even more so. And I do keep it, at least for a period of time. Mm -hmm. One can never say forever, but sometimes I keep that said painting, you know, for six months. In other words, I don't put it into the market, put it up for sale. Six months, maybe, you know, a year or maybe five years, or I've got some paintings I painted 25 years ago. Um, so, getting back to, to what that particular chief painting. So that that's one of them. Um, it's called In Need of Nothing. It's mm, a 60 on. inch by 40 inch uh, oil painting of a, of a warrior. And, but it's so raw and it's so spontaneous and it's so emotional and so moving, at least for me. Um, and the palette, like everything just kind of worked. And it was, you know, just really, really raw is the main word, I guess. But there was something about the expression of that warrior. And he was kind of in three-quarter view. He wasn't looking at the viewer, mm -hmm. looking at me. But something in his eye just kind of resonated. And that's why, partially why I titled it that. And titles are so important. In need of nothing. In other words, you know, this man, this noble, beautiful man, um, he doesn't need anything. He just got it all. It's in his heart. It's in his soul. And, and you can just sense that, you know. Mm -hmm. So I wanted that painting. <laughs> It's like, I wanted that painting, it's in our dining room, um, in my life, in my space to teach me. It's almost like a shaman, you know, and, and to give me stability and I could, I could go to him and look to him. So that's one that just really, really connected with me. I mean, there were many, but that one in particular, you know, the old cliche of the house is burning, you know, what, what are you gonna grab, you know, besides people <laughs> and, and pets, but, uh, that's a painting I would grab. You know, I'd run out on the street with that painting, let the, let the other ones burn just because of that. But again, Zach, I mean, it's, it's also subjective, eh? you know, uh, because it's such a raw, um, you know, for lack of a better word, maybe an angry kind of painting in some ways, because you know, it's so dark, you know, it's not, you know, it, it, there is some popularity with it because I've, I've 
posted it, but not a lot, you know, because it's a real edgy piece. But I don't care about any of that. It just works for me. You know, Paul, you grew up in you know, Manitoba. You went to BC, and now you're back here in Calgary. Yeah. Where did this Western love come from and this, this passion for <laughs> yeah. horses? Because when you see your horse paintings, there's a magnitude and force that just pops out and you're like, wow, that's strength right there of a horse. You know, how does yeah. that come out of you? Yeah, um, yeah born in Winnipeg in 1960. And my, my family, my parents, my, my late parents and my siblings, uh, four siblings, we all went to the Calgary Stampede, you know, when I was 10, for for a summer vacation um and then i was hooked you know cowboys and indians that was it for me you know that was the moment you know seeing the stampede of course uh, but going to the rodeo going to the indian village and so on and i knew like i knew to an extent like in retrospect i knew i didn't know like in that moment necessarily because right. I, I was a 10 year old kid but that that really changed things so kind of fast forward we ended up moving to Calgary in 1973. I was 13. Um, went to art school and so on and did all that. And then when it was time to do, um, you know, choose a subject to paint, it was a slam dunk. I mean, it was Western work. So to do a deep, deeper dive in that, you know, there's just something about, you know, the West and uh, to use the term cowboys and Indians. I mean, I know we should be speaking of First Nations and Aboriginal, of course, but just that context. Um, there's just something about just the vibration of that culture historically and current and just the dignity and the calm and the nobility and all those elements, you know, nature, all that just come into play, you know, in both those disciplines. And I want some of that, you know, and, and for me to explore those cultures through my work, I'm in there, you know, I'm in there and it gives that to me. Um, so, you know, so be, you know, that aside, you know, the aesthetic of it, you know, which is the image Beautiful. itself, yes. you know, the horses, I mean, my gosh, you know, the horse has been, the horse changes, has changed civilizations through the history of time, you know, and still does. So the, the, the symbolism and the significance of that animal historically, yeah. let alone the aesthetic, you know, from the wild mane and tail and the muscle groups and the challenge of, of painting that and capturing the personality of the horse, you know, and maybe, you know, a, a small filial foal or, or, yeah. or colt by itself or a stampede of 165 horses. It's just that animal. Yeah. So within that animal, um, I can just go all over the place, like an abstract stallion or whatever, all over the place. So, you know, I'm not a cowboy. Um, I don't live on a ranch. I don't own horses. Sure, I ride and sure, I've been to ranches. But one doesn't need to be a cowboy or a cowgirl to love the animal, right? As I do. Hopefully you can sense my passion. I can definitely and sense I, your passion I, for horses. Oh, yes, it comes. oh, gosh. You know, and then First Nations as well. That's a whole other area. Mm -hmm. You know, through painting um, that subject, you know, I've been privileged to go to bundle transfers and sweats and ceremonies and so on. And I've had, I uh, have, you know, chiefs and dignitaries collect my work. And, you know, you know, Honestly, um, there has been some controversy over the years, not a lot, because a white guy is painting First Nations. But I'm not, I'm not painting native art, Zach. I'm painting art of natives. There's a big difference, you know? So I'm not, I'm not painting native art because of visions I have and so on, which a lot of that culture has. 
I, I'm capturing them in a different genre in a different way. And so I'm, and that's, and you know, they're in the public, every, everything's in the public domain. We can all as artists, you know, be inspired and influenced by them. So, you know, more times than not, of course, you know, my First Nations work has been really well received and well supported and by the native community. You know, I can give you a list of, of uh, significant locations within that, those tribes that my work is placed. And that's a real, that's a, that's a real extra honor, if you will. Yeah. One day, Paul, I'll have your work right here. There you go, man. <laughs> now, do you, do you print or how does someone get a hold of your work, Paul? How can someone find a way to get a hold of you? Um, you know, the very best way is through my website, okay. paulvanninkle.com. And I'm saying that, Zach, because if you Google anyone, if you Google me, there's a lot of, you know, unauthorized, out of date, inaccurate stuff out there. Uh, some of it is okay and it's good, but it's my website that's best. And even though I'm on all the social media platforms, um, those two are still kind of limited. Mm -hmm. So the real deep dive into me and my work is on my website. Um, because it's all my work. There's an archive of works. Not every painting I've ever done is on the site, but you know, there's available paintings. There's a selection of sold paintings that people can look at. And the sold painting category usually inspires uh, commission work. You know, people go there and say, you know, I really like that painting, but it's not available. Can you do one similar for me? And I do that to their specifications. So that's great. But also there's bio, you know, biographical information. Um, there, there's been, you know, a lot of videos, if you will, and documentaries on me and my work. That, that, yeah, that's Amazon Prime has one. Yeah, there you go. You know, um, my wife and I designed a, uh, a marvelous house in Springbank uh, as our home, but also to showcase my work. Um, you know, Cowboy Country did a video on that and so on. So that's on there. We, we since moved from there. Oh, yeah. So okay. a, Are you in Springbank still or no? No, no we're in Marlboro. Yeah. I read it was like a 6,000 square foot house in Springbank, right? Yeah, that was, that was a trip, Zach, you know, um, I don't know if you want me to touch on that. So we, yeah, in, in 2004, uh, with 2003, we bought the property. So it, it was, it was Springbank Hill, it's called the slope. So it was, it was looking west and it had an unobstructed 180 view of the mountain. So it was marvelous. Oh, yeah. um, my wife, uh, Kristen, who's a retired architect, she retired when, when our daughter Isabella was born 14 years ago. Um, marvelous architect, primarily a commercial architect, but she did the odd residential home right. as well. We went down to San Miguel de Lande, Mexico to, to buy old Mexican doors and, and all the furniture and she incorporated that into our home. So again, it was primarily our home, but hence the size of it, it was also my, also my studio and gallery. And so we hosted um, two or three events there with live music, you know, flamenco music and, and Mexican music for seven years. And, uh, and so that was the model in which I operated, you know, back then. Um, and that was, you know, so they, they were opening nights and it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. So, um, so, so that, you know, that was, that, that was one of the ways that I, that I market and, and package my work as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope you moved before the slopes created the roundabout. Well, you know what, Zach, I mean, that's bang on because a lot of people said, asked us, why are you moving? Mm -hmm. You know, there's always a number of reasons why people move, I suspect, um, as we had a number of reasons, but that was the primary reason. And even though when we bought the property in 2003, you know, we did our due diligence right. and the ring roll was coming at some point, uh, you know, it never came and it kept on being delayed. Yeah. And then finally, it was getting far more traction. I mean, and there was signs in our neighborhood, the ring road is coming. 
So we actually thought we better get out of here, you know, because we don't want the ring room because it would have been right in our backyard. I mean, almost literally, uh, plus property value would have plummeted and so on. Yeah. So we were very fortunate. We sold at fair market value about six months before that ring row was approved. Oh. So we got, we got out just before the door closed, you know. Well, right now, Paul, these guys can't even sell or they're selling for pennies on the dollar. There you go, man. So we are extremely fortunate. You know, so, you know, do we miss that home? I mean, sure we do yeah. to an extent. I mean, it's a marvelous place. But you know what? I, mean, I look at life as just chapters and, and stages. And that was one chapter. It was fantastic. Yeah. But we left for all the good reasons. You know, we weren't forced out. We didn't have to leave. We, cho we chose to leave. And we were fortunate we did leave. Do you love the living in the area of Mount Royal now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it's good. Um, you know, it's a, it's an older, older established, uh, neighborhood, obviously. Um, our house was built in 1917, wow. you know, it was updated and renovated, you know, a couple of times. Yeah. So it has great character. Um, Super. but you know, truth be told, we, we want to move more West close to our, our daughter's school. She goes to a private right. school on the, on the Western edge of the city. So, you know, that might be in the plans the next year or so, but you know, it's, it, it, this is a good place to live. <laughs> thank you so much, though, Paul, for your time today. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Exactly. I really appreciate it.